Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We're uh, thrilled to have uh, Dr. David King with us. Dr. Uh, King is a trauma and acute care surgeon at Mass General Hospital. He's an associate professor of surgery at the Harvard Medical School, and he's also a active lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Dr. King, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, if you could just give us, you know, kind of a, a general rundown of, of who you are, uh, where you come from, and what you do. Uh, I was born in... Uh, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, a small city most people have never heard of. Did most of my training in um, Miami. I went to medical school in Miami, did my residency fellowships there. Uh, and then I came to Boston to join the faculty at uh, Mass General. And were you in the Army that entire time, or at what point did you, your involvement with the Army begin? Uh, I joined the Army about um, four months before 9-11. Perfect timing. Uh, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> no one was expecting that, but um, 9-11 created, obviously, an amazing opportunity to serve, and um, I, I'm happy to continue doing so. So what went into that, you know, the, the decision to join the Army? Was this during, uh, after residency, before residency, before fellowship? What, what uh, it was, for me, it was during residency. Um, it was, as it is for most people, I think, a fairly complicated decision, but in the end, it basically came down to uh, it was something I I felt I should do because I can do, and others may ch- choose to not do or cannot do. Um, and you know we're a all volunteer army, and that is required to uh, maintain our posture and safety in the world. And I just felt compelled that I should be a part of that. And uh, if you just tell us a little bit, what's your, you know, what's your daily practice like um, at Mass General? What do you focus on? What's a typical, you know, type, kind of week look like for you? Sure. So uh, I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon. So naturally, most of my business uh, comes from the emergency department. Um, have a very, very small uh, elective practice, um, but uh, usually it's sort of um, uh, eat what you kill, uh, whatever comes in through the front door. And um, a week, a month or so, uh, rounding uh, in the ICU, and um, I have a fairly busy uh, laboratory uh, that I run where I spend a pretty significant proportion of my time as well. Yeah, tell us more about that. What are you doing in your lab? Uh, So my lab mostly looks at um, novel hemorrhage control and resuscitation strategies, and of recent, mostly focusing on the hemorrhage control side. looking at uh, innovative and uh, novel ideas for um, intracavitary uh, bleeding control. So like non-compressible truncal hemorrhage, essentially? Exactly, right. Um, Right right now, looking specifically at uh, non-compressible infradiaphragmatic hemorrhage. Um, So all this stuff that you're researching, I'm sure it ties very nicely into your deployments and such. Uh, Could you tell us a, a little bit more about what your deployments have been like? How many have you been on so far? Sure. So I first deployed to uh, Iraq in, uh, I believe it was 2007 through 2008. And then uh, a trip to Afghanistan a couple years later, and another trip to Afghanistan a couple years later. Uh, Then uh, around about um, 
uh, shortly after that, I got recruited uh, to the special operations community uh, where we deploy much more frequently, but for shorter duration, very high intensity uh, deployments. And um, I, I, I just think I ha- have the best job in the Army right now. Would you mind, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe how some of your experiences, I don't know if you can share some of the experiences of um, maybe a difficult case um, in, a, in a difficult setting um, and how that's fed into uh, your research that you're doing um, and, you know, some of the problems that you're trying to solve through your research? Sure. So uh, operating in uh, a forward environment, it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a military environment, but, environment, but any resource poor environment. Uh, is a challenge requires um, certainly a higher degree of creativity. I think than um, a if there's such a thing as a routine emergency case. You know, at at the big house at a, a hospital with um, um, at a hospital like mine and like most uh, academic centers that most people uh, would regard as having nearly infinite resources. So operating in any kind of resource resource constrained environment requires i i think a a a degree of creativity and uh that resource constrainment may also um may uh also be linked with um operating in unusual uh environments uh and the farther forward you push surgery uh particularly on the battlefield the more challenges are present themselves and the more creative you have to be to solve those problems. So, um, you know, we, the, the U S military pushes surgery pretty, pretty far forward, uh, through a variety of, uh, mechanisms in the, uh, regular, uh, you know, traditional army and certainly in the special operations community, pushing it very, very far forward. Uh, and I, I'll, I have to be honest, my experience is probably not unlike almost uh, any military surgeon's experience uh, who has deployed to a major theater. And uh, and that is uh, every every case is is an opportunity to learn and innovate and problem solve. Uh, And I I think most surgeons, including me, uh, come away from those experiences uh, really um, learning how to. Uh, improvise and um, problem solve in ways that you generally don't um, are, are not forced to do in a traditional academic environment. Uh, so, you know, managing a traumatic um, abdominal, pelvic, perineal, bilateral, lower extremity injury in a um, resource non-constrained environment looks like um, looks one way and trying to do that same case, um, in a very different dynamic, perhaps evolving environment is, uh, very, those required similar, but different skill sets. Uh, I don't know. I, I find it, I find it very interesting and very challenging. Absolutely. So Dr. King, before we dive further into some of the intricacies of those different cases and how you'd approach various cases in one scenario versus another, um, let's take it back a little bit. So we have listeners all across the board. Some are in the army. Some have no military affiliation whatsoever. Uh, you have mentioned words like far forward. Could you help distill that, boil that down? What does it exactly mean if you're saying the army is far forward and, and you're resource poor? Does that mean you're, you're able to operate? Do you have 
one operating room? Do you have two? Could you give us a little bit more of a background? Sure. So uh, without getting into too much uh, military lingo and talking about echelons of care and so on, th- there there are various um, uh, environments in which you can deliver healthcare on the battlefield. Those environments um, start large and can become quite small. So uh, in some cases, you we can operate in a facility that for nearly all intents and purposes feels like a level one trauma center. Uh, so for example, uh, my first deployment to Iraq was at Ibn Sina Hospital, uh, which was a um, one of Saddam's hospitals that we took over. And uh, I mean, we had the, the best blood bank in the world and uh, axial imaging. Uh, we had an interventional radiologist and a neurosurgeon and so on. So, um, although that is operating in a, in a, uh, war zone, um, when you're in the operating room, it can feel very much like you're back home because, uh, it's just resourced so well. And the, the team around you is so invested, uh, and dedicated to that process. Um, when you, push a little bit more forward, you get into smaller teams. Uh, usually some teams are 10 or 20 man teams. And perhaps uh, in that environment, you might be uh, operating out of a tent or a, or a, a connex, a, a shipping container, something like that. And uh, you can do less there. You know, those environments uh, commonly or used to be known as a forward surgical team. Um, those environments are a little more challenging. Sometimes uh, you have one or two operating room tables, uh, a single uh, nurse anesthetist, perhaps, uh, maybe an orthopedic surgeon, commonly not. Uh, that environment presents its own set of challenges, uh, including, um, you know, sometimes things I've run into is something as simple as running out of sterile instruments. Uh, that certainly happened to me. And, um, and then beyond, beyond that, Beyond the traditional military and the um, special operations community, we push surgery even more forward, and we're sometimes operating without operating room tables uh, in extremely unusual uh, environments. So um, you can a, a person, a surgeon, a healthcare team can learn a lot uh, under those varying sets of circumstances. Yeah, I think you. I think you kind of hit on something there. I mean, uh, myself recently coming back from a, a forward, you know, surgical kind of type of deployment. I know Doctor Steele's been there, been in that situation many times. A lot of times, what people will talk about or want to talk about when they talk about you know pushing surgery forward are you know the cool, sexy things. I think I, I recently heard a talk talking about taking a three D printer so you could have three D printed instruments. But when the reality of the fact is, do you have electricity? Do you have uh, sterile instruments. Those are the things that really uh, come down to are the important things when you're operating in that type of forward environment. Um, and I want to get a little bit back to your, your research with um, these novel hemostatics, because I think we've all been in that situation where, or some of us have been in that situation where there's non-compressible bleeding and you're in that kind of austere environment. And I know I've had situations where uh, it didn't work out so well. Um, is there anything that you maybe from your one of your early deployments where things didn't go so well that now you feel like looking back on, you have a better solution 
uh, too, now that you have gained more experience and through your research? There are certainly a, a, a variety of patient experiences um, on the battlefield that have driven uh, my research. The, probably the most, the most important driving factor is um, the patients, quite honestly, who I didn't operate on. What I mean by that is, uh, for example, on the uh, 10th anniversary of 9-11, I was in Afghanistan and a 10,000 pound uh, vehicle borne IED exploded at a, a, a cop, a combat outpost, uh, Sayadabad. And uh, I was suddenly a, a sole surgeon at a forward surgical team uh, with more than 40 patients in front of me, 40 living patients. And I would be running around trying to deliver care uh, simultaneously triaging and uh, declaring uh, some soldiers and host nation nationals dead, and I it became apparent in in many of those for, for many of those patients that they were dying or had died uh, from uh, intraabdominal exsanguination, and th- the reason that they died is because there was no intervention that could be delivered to them soon enough. So b- before they reached me, right. And um, had there been a a uh, easier fix or a uh, something, if we if we had a technology that was or an approach that was different than what we regard as sort of business, the business of surgery as usual, um, you know, maybe maybe a bunch of those guys could have been saved. I don't know. Uh, but when you're you know you're going around with the ultrasound trying to triage people and um you have a you know a fellow soldier in in front of you who's uh in the same uniform that you are and um you know you you look at their heart and it's asystolic and they're they're, they don't have pneumos and you swing the uh, probe down to the abdomen and uh you know there's a uh a mckinney score of 10 uh and they're dead you realize that they died from intra-abdominal exsanguination. There was the, the, the only hope that person had was uh, hemostasis sooner. And uh, at, at that time, at least, uh, that just wasn't possible. So you, you see enough of those cases, they start to eat away at you. And um, as, as a researcher, it started to uh, uh, drive an interest in uh, creating some something new, something novel that could perhaps address that. And, and what's the, what's been the result of that? Uh, so, um, about seven years ago, uh, roughly we submitted a, a DARPA grant, uh, ad- addressing this very issue, a non-compressible, uh, intra-abdominal, uh, infradiaphragmatic hemorrhage. And, um, that DARPA grant turned into another DARPA grant, which turned into a DOD grant. And we have uh, developed a uh, percutaneously administered uh, self-expanding hemostatic foam, um, which uh, we have named uh, Rescue Foam, R-E-S, capital Q, Foam, Rescue Foam. And uh, through, uh, gee, we must be into well over 900 or 950 uh, large animal experiments now. Uh, Throughout that process, looking at a variety of lethal injury patterns and um, 
uh, refining uh, the uh, characteristics of foam and figuring out how to make survivors out of uh, animals who would otherwise die. We finally developed a large enough body of literature to go to the FDA, who recently gave us uh, an IDE to conduct a, a first-in-human trial. So um, we expect that should be starting uh, perhaps in the next uh, quarter or in the second or third quarter of this year, I hope. Oh, that's fascinating. So you said percutaneously injected, but where where are you administering these? Are you putting it into the preperitoneal space? Are you putting it in the peritoneum? Uh, So rescue foam is uh, administered through a roughly uh, 12 millimeter trocar. Uh, It's a a static mixing nozzle that looks like a trocar, but is not a traditional trocar, but it's about, it's 12 millimeters in uh, diameter um, administered um, through a uh, uh, umbilical incision, just like you would obtain laparoscopic access for dozens of other laparoscopic cases. Uh, and the, the, the trocar um, has a unique tip that is essentially an, omni, an omnidirectional spray. Uh, and the, the, the foam is a, a two times liquid precursor that when you inject it, goes the two liquids flow through uh, the, the static mixing nozzle, which takes these two liquids that have very different viscosities, uh, mixes them together, turns them into a final liquid that has um, uh, a, a different set of physical properties. That liquid uh, comes out the omnidirectional trocar and undergoes a phase change over about 90 seconds from uh, liquid to solid. And during that phase change, it expands to 39 and a half times its original volume. Uh, and while it's undergoing this phase change from liquid to solid, it's uh, descending in the pool of blood and wrapping around uh, intra-abdominal structures and creating uh, a direct tamponade effect on uh, whatever is bleeding. And we've looked at this in very complex liver injuries, splenic injuries, cable injuries, um, uh, retroperitoneal vascular injuries, like combined uh, iliac artery, iliac vein injuries. And our uh, IDE from the FDA will uh, will investigate this in, in humans now, so that is intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Back in the lab now, we're also looking at uh, rescue foam as an alternative uh, or improvement on uh, preperitoneal packing for complex retroperitoneal bleeding in uh, uh, pelvic fractures. Uh, so we're, we're quite a ways away from humans on the um, pelvic fracture front, uh, but um, I, I hope we'll get there. Dr. King, I, I mean, obviously this is for a life-saving measure at this time, but is there any look at the long-term effects of something like that and the, for patients who undergo that procedure? Yeah, so we, we spent uh, quite a bit of time in the lab um, looking at this. Initial work, of course, is on just hemorrhage control and survival, but uh, we have done a series of, um, of long-term survival studies, so 30, 60, 90-day survival, where we injure animals, uh, inject them with foam, uh, explant foam, repair injuries, wake them up, survive them, uh, put them in the cage, and allow them to live for months, uh, at which point we uh, sacrifice them and uh, uh, look for all manner of um, uh, complications that uh, might occur, uh, things you might expect, and uh, uh, you know, look for things we might not expect. Uh, one of our major concerns was, um, and, and a concern that most people jump to when they think, gee, you're you're 
you're putting in a foam that expands uh, and uh, creates intra-abdominal hypertension and the, what we you know, do all these patients get compartment syndrome and renal failure. And uh, it's great. It, it, well, it would be great if you can stop hemorrhage, but if everyone um, gets renal failure and goes on dialysis afterwards, um, you know, probably that's an arguable risk benefit balance. But, um, you know, we, we looked very carefully at renal function among, you know, a hundred other parameters. Uh, and we've, we've never seen a case of renal failure in, uh, you know, 950 large animal experiments. Uh, no one gets compartment syndrome. Um, uh, no one gets uh, embolic fragments of foam in their lungs or heart or brain or other organs. Um, so we, we've, we've looked at this extensively in, um, in literally uh, hundreds of, of different ways in long-term survival. Now, what about, um, is this meant to be like a definitive management, maybe for like a liver injury to, to avoid an operation? But what about those patients that do end up needing an operation? Does this, uh, how, how does this affect your operative fields? Does it scar in there? Does it make that more challenging, more difficult technically? So no, this is absolutely not a definitive maneuver. Um, that we view this as a hemostatic bridge. So uh, the idea is to, uh, pa- patient selection is, is paramount. Um, so this is not something you would administer to a uh, low-grade splenic injury that has the very high likelihood of, of being successfully managed non-operatively. So we're, identif- we, we're trying to identify um, patients who are actively exsanguinating and by most measure, uh, by anyone's um, logical measure, are likely to die a rapid death. So we want to take those patients who are likely to die, uh, give them a hemostatic bridge, turn them into temporary survivors, um, so that allows them to reach a surgeon and reach the operating room where foam can be um, explanted and injuries definitively addressed. So the the foam is, uh, 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 without getting too too technical is essentially a type of uh, polyurethane, and uh, you know poly- polyurethane is part of uh, many many different uh, types of uh, Im- implants that uh, we use in surgery in general. So it's essentially biologically inert, uh, but it cannot be left in situ. The, the volume of foam um, that is administered to create hemostasis is large, uh, so it must be removed at laparotomy. Uh, and injuries definitively addressed. So essentially, um, you will you would only foam someone who you've already determined needs an operation. So you're talking about you're you're thinking that this might have uh, or this should be applied in the in the field by potentially a, a non physician. Well, that that that's certainly the end game. Uh, we'd love to we'd love to to get there. Uh, create a uh, an army of uh, non-physician providers on the battlefield who can be trained to triage. So that likely means um, they need ultrasound skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, identify exactly these patients, patients with uh, intra-abdominal exsanguination um, and allow those um, providers to who, who are healthcare providers but do not have the ability to perform a hemorrhage control operation and uh, uh, teach them to be able to um, administer foam uh, through the umbilicus. We've, we've done quite a bit of um, uh, human factors testing on this. We've learned that um, we, we can successfully 
uh, train military medics to safely access the abdomen and place the trocar. Uh, so we know that that hurdle is uh, conquerable. Um, we're not there yet. The first in the first in human study that's about to start will not be um, pre-hospital providers. Uh, it'll be done in uh, level one centers uh, upon presentation in the emergency department. Uh, but uh, as you as you can imagine, if that turns out to if the human data turns out similar to the uh, robust body of uh, animal data, you'd love to to see this and uh, hopefully push this um, into the pre-hospital environment. Uh, but uh, we're not quite there yet. So, Dr. King, for this uh, human trial that you guys are planning, what do you intend to be the standard of care you're comparing the intervention against? Is it going to be just laparotomy alone versus uh, this is a bridge to laparotomy in, in treatment? So if in a, in a very large uh, recent uh, multicenter uh, study that uh, uh, I participated in, uh, among many others, uh, uh, called the, essentially the modern uh, trauma laparotomy, um, even in the best centers, it takes about 32 minutes to get to the operating room from arrival. So time you hit the front door to time we're starting an operation. And when you risk adjust patients for death, uh, who are exsanguinating um, in the intra-abdominal compartment, the risk of death is about 1% per minute uh, delayed to the operating room. So um, that 32 minutes that it takes to start the operation is significant and dramatic. So uh, the, the, um, the rescue foam arm, of, uh, so w- one arm will be absolutely routine standard of care. Uh, and the rescue foam um, study essentially will um, look at providing uh, foam intervention within moments of arrival uh, and hopefully providing a hemostatic bridge for those patients from uh, that time they're spending in the ED, uh, bridge them so you get to the operating room with a patient who is in better physiologic condition uh, than they would be if they had the routine standard of care. Do you have any experience using um uh, and there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, pushing Reboa farther and farther forward. Um, there's a lot of interest in, in its use, um, in a deployed kind of forward setting. Um, there's a lot of interest in it being applied by non-physicians, both in, in the States and in the deployed setting. Have, have you had any experience with that? What are your thoughts on those? I have. So I, I, I Reboa, um, our, my institution, uh, Reboa's. Um, as, as you probably are aware, uh, the data for Reboa in, um, non-compressible hemorrhage is still evolving, uh, especially, uh, in, uh, zone one Reboa. Uh, I think there's a, a more robust data set to support the safety of, uh, zone three Reboa. Um, how, how, far forward should Reboa be pushed? I don't have an answer to. I, I currently, on the military side, operate in an extremely forward environment, and we carry Reboa, so uh, we, we have that capability. I have not. Uh, I, I just came back from deployment in December. December, I didn't Reboa anyone um, far forward, and, and quite honestly, I, I, no, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that yet. No, no one knows how far you can push that. If you if you look at the um, the HEM system in the UK, uh, they're carrying very far forward uh, Reboa. So you know, on, on at, at the roadside has been reported, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure anybody knows where that's where that's going to go yet. 
Uh, it's a remarkable technology with the new uh, part-time catheter. It's a much smaller introducer sheath, uh, which hopefully will mean uh, fewer access site complications. But um, j- just like rescue foam, uh, I-, I think the the jury's still out, and we we just need more data. Dr. Steele, what are your, what are your thoughts? Have you uh, you've been you've been there as well? Um, do you see a role for it? Has there been a time when or have you used it in deployed sanity? Is there a time where you wish you may have had it when you didn't? Yeah, I think that most of us who have deployed have always been having an opportunity for any one of these things to have another tool in our armamentarium. I think the biggest thing that we need to think about is with any new technology, are we using it in the right patient for the right indications? And are we adequately trained? You know, you can go back all the way to thinking about, you know, in the first beginnings of the deployments with factor seven, it seems like everybody was getting that. And then as the data came out, was that the right thing to do? Was it not? There's a lot of controversy surrounding that. And, um, uh, you know, I think that most importantly that we have a, you know, some of these care pathways that are in place that uh, allows the people uh, that really need it to be able to have that access to save their lives. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I I actually I did use Roboa a couple times on my most recent deployment. There's one time where it worked. Uh, there's one time where I wish I had used it when I didn't. Uh, things didn't turn out so so great. But I guess my concern was pushing it farther and farther forward. It was the number of people that I got sent to me with inadequate tourniquets placed. Um, you know, we're still struggling with that. You know, we're still struggling with something as basic as that to, to have something more complex put in the field. I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I don't disagree. Um, <laughs> the 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 patient selection and the provider training are uh, for 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 all of these uh, interventions are are paramount. I, I published a paper uh, in I think 2012 where I, I looked at uh, 79 um, pre-hospital um, tourniquets, and those pre-hospital tourniquets were all all 79 of them were placed in, in Afghanistan uh, by what I would regard uh, generally as um, very experienced um, medics. Um, and um, there was a, in that, in that study, there was a, a high rate of error. And mm-hmm. if our most experienced people are occasionally making errors, then uh, you can only imagine that the less experienced or um, less trained uh, folks are probably uh, likely to make even more errors. So yeah, uh, that we need to, we need to be beating the training drum uh, pretty hard. You know, previously we had Dr. Valmalt on here on Behind the Knife, and we talked a lot about the Boston Marathon on that particular day and, you know, lessons learned and some of the unique situations regarding you know, just the change of shift and the extra people and the fact that it was a holiday in Boston and kind of a lot of very interesting conversation. I was curious, um, uh, you are a marathoner yourself. Uh, if our, if our uh, kind of our, our snooping around it as well, you're a three hour, 12 minute. Is that, is that right? Is that, uh, is that, was that you, your run on that day? Yeah. Well, just to make, make the, um, um, the, the facts correct, you know, as, as a, uh, as a, a chronic runner, um, we, uh, <laughs> self-identify by our marathon time in 2013, I was definitely a three hour and 12 minute marathoner. Uh, and despite the fact that I'm getting older, I am currently a two hour, 55 minute marathoner. So, uh, <laughs> I just have to make that tiny correction. 
But yes, in 2013, I was absolutely a three-hour and 12-minute marathoner. Well, congratulations on being sub three. Um, so uh, your thoughts about that day and um, a little bit about, in fact, obviously participating in that and um, and your uh, your events and maybe something that you look back on and uh, lessons you took apart from it. Yeah, well, you know, George being a... Um, a, a partner, uh, it, you know, he and I have digested this uh, over and over, um, I don't know, probably hundreds of times. Um, and, um, you, you know, for, for my part of it for, for that day was, uh, you know, I, I ran the race and then uh, essentially continued uh, running to the hospital and uh, into the operating room uh, afterwards. And um, one of the remarkable moments that I reflect on is not the um, not the technicals of uh, who did what right and what what could have been done better. You know, there are a lot of uh, well, there weren't a lot of. They were nearly all uh, improvised tourniquets on that day. We know that improvised tourniquets don't work so well. With uh, that meant a lot of patients presented with paradoxical bleeding from their limb injuries. Um, but that's not what struck me. Uh, most powerfully, what struck me most powerfully was that although there was medical infrastructure at the finish line, right, a big medical tent with lots of providers, and granted, uh, th- those providers are, were generally not uh, trauma-specific providers, right? They were uh, medical providers who were prepared for what you would expect on a marathon day, uh, tweaked ankles and heat injuries and chest pain and so on. Uh, but there were still medical providers there, and and even if you're not a trauma surgeon, most, uh, most medical folks, uh, physician and non-physician alike, understand the, the, the basics of trauma care. Uh, but despite that infrastructure at the finish line, when you review or when we review um, video of Boylston Street, it is remarkable to me that the people who were truly delivering care first. So that is the first person to come in contact with an injured person was not largely a medical provider. It was a bystander, right? It was a a fellow um, spectator who was uninjured or maybe injured, but not as injured as the person standing next to them. And those people immediately uh, started rendering the best aid that they knew how to. So I, I used to call those people the uh, bystanders who helped or the so-called um, you know, medical bystanders. Uh, but what I've thought about and, and learned from uh, watching all that scene video is that those are not bystanders, those are by-doers. They are people who uh, felt compelled to their core, right? They're not medical professionals. They're not, but largely are not even were not even medical amateurs. They were spectators who were compelled to act in whatever way they knew possible. And so I, I call those people now the by-doers. And what does that mean uh, for in a, in a grander scheme? And uh, for me, what's uh, in a, one of the most important lessons learned from that day is that at least in our culture in the United States, we don't need to convince good people to act and do good things. It's, it's incumbent upon us as 
Americans. Uh, which means as I, as I think forward through the evolution of um, the Hartford Consensus uh, and um, the nationwide Stop the Bleed effort and the presidential endorsement and the, how this got picked up by the ACS and so on, um, when I teach, or in the early days when I was teaching Stop the Bleed, before it had a name, before it had a hashtag and a website and so on, uh, but uh, you know, I, I was teaching tourniquet training um, way before the Boston Marathon bombing and, and certainly a heck of a lot more afterwards. But I, before Boston, I used to, uh, as part of the, the training, uh, provide a, you know, a, a, a block of instruction on compelling people to act, trying to empower them, uh, and then teaching them the technical skill. So convincing them they should act and then saying, if you're going to act, this is the right way to put a tourniquet on. But what Boston made me realize is, is that um, we already have that first part solved. No one convinced the, the by doers to engage. They just did it because they recognized a suffering human being standing next to them. Uh, and, and so for me, that that's the, was the most profound lesson of the day uh, is witnessing and uh, reflecting on the goodness of strangers uh, one to another. And if it, and we are harnessing uh, that goodness and teaching people not to act, because they will already do that, but we're teaching them now how to act. Uh, and if you combine that skill set with ubiquitous availability of tourniquets in public spaces, um, I'd like to believe that we can potentially avert uh, unnecessary deaths from limb hemorrhage in the future. That's fantastic. It's now time for our tips and tricks segment uh, when we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints to take us out of a sticky situation. So we thought with you we'd go back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier and just talk a little bit about the role of Reboa, maybe some tips and tricks there, but also a little bit more about some things that may be used in certain centers still, but in others not, and that's the DPA and the DPL. And then finally, about a little bit about pelvic packing. When do you use each of these components? Again, DPA, DPL, Rebo, and pelvic packing. And a little bit more about um, what are some technical aspects of how you do them? Sure. So with respect to Reboa, um, the greatest danger uh, for Reboa is uh, excluding Superdiaphragmatic hemorrhage as a source of hypotension uh, before occluding balloon occluding the aorta, and sometimes that can be a challenge. Uh, you can imagine if there's a uh, an injury. Well, yeah, you can imagine if there's an injury proximal to the balloon occlusion, you will likely uh, cause um, uh, rapid exsanguination. Uh, from that injury. So the rapidness of your Reboa intervention is limited by your interrogation of the superdiaphragmatic compartments. Uh, so how fast can you exclude left-right hemothorax, um, uh, mediastinal hemorrhage, so from uh, aortic injury, a heart injury, or um, you know proximal uh, pulmonary parenchymal injury? How fast can you do that? So if you're, if you're very facile with the ultrasound, uh, it, that doesn't take very long at all. But of course, um, real life never, is never exactly uh, the way we want it to be in the textbook. And uh, as has happened uh, to many of us, 
um, you know, patients present with multi-system injuries and um, uh, sometimes have uh, pneumothoraces, for example, uh, in conjunction with their uh, injury set. And a pneumothorax that um, presents with a significant amount, or not even, doesn't have to be that significant, but even a small or moderate amount of subcutaneous emphysema can make it extremely challenging uh, to get good ultrasonographic views of um, of the pleura and the heart and so on. Uh, and so those can be real real barriers to um, to trying to understand which patients it is safe to use uh, Reboa on. Uh, but when you can, when, when you can rapidly exclude a super diaphragmatic hemorrhage and then define in a um, positive way where the patients are bleeding from. So a negative um, ultrasonographic exam of the super diaphragmatic compartment, but a fluidly positive intra-abdominal um, uh, exam for blood. So y- you would you might consider th- uh, uh, that patient a very reasonable candidate for a zone one Reboa uh, versus the patient with uh, a, a negative FAST exam in all compartments, super and infradiaphragmatic, um, but a, a very complex pelvic fracture and profound hypotension uh, on, a, um, on a plain film of the pelvis, uh, I, would, um, I would enthusiastically uh, zone three Reboa uh, that patient. Um, as as long as I thought I could do so without uh, delaying or creating a very minimal uh, delay uh, to presentation to the operating room. So uh, for me, that's the the biggest um, the biggest caveat with uh, Reboa. It's not the, the 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 technical aspects of how to get access and where to put the balloon and so on. It's of course, <clears throat> like we were talking about earlier, it's patient selection. It's identifying the right patient uh, who is. Um, not just likely to benefit from Reboa, but um, so you will first do no harm by putting um, the balloon occlusion catheter in. So how do you make that distinction? So, you know, let's say, you know, a patient with a penetrating pelvic, um, you know, injury, you know, floridly unstable with a positive fast uh, below the diaphragm. Um, How do you make that distinction between uh, let's let's put in the Reboa versus let's just go to the operating room. Let's resuscitate. Let's go to the operating room. Let's get supraceliac control. Um, is there like a is, is it a time if you think it's going to take you know you know fifteen minutes to get him to the operating room? Is is there a time cut off or how, how do you personally make that distinction? Yeah, so I, I wish we had data, right? I wish we had data to to guide us on this. Meaning, uh, um, you, we would I think we would all like a number. So uh, if we know the average, the mean time in the in a level one center in the United States is 32 minutes to start the operation, and we somehow could categorize or classify patients as someone who is likely to die in less than or arrest in less than 32 minutes, um, then sure, that would be someone who absolutely would benefit from Reboa. Uh, but of course, we don't have that ability right now. We don't know what the what the time cutoffs are. And and in creating that balance between uh, the potential uh, benefit of improved um, supra balloon hemodynamics and the uh, downside of infra balloon um, total body ischemia uh, is a, a delicate balance that I, I don't think anyone has um, a solid answer to 
uh, right now, but we're, we're getting there, right? There's uh, the uh, AAST National Rebola Registry, and we're, we're learning a lot uh, from that, and a series of um, animal studies that are coming out are, are helping guide us. Uh, but I, I, I have uh, come to accept um, that which I think many surgeons have a, a problem accepting, and, and that is that the, the data don't lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it, for most of us, it feels like we're in the resuscitation bay for five minutes before we roll off to the operating room, uh, but it never is. Um, it, if you look across centers, it's much, much longer than that. So sure, I'd like to, I, I would say if I knew that my um, time from decision to operate to uh, knife on skin is only going to be five minutes, I, 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 I'm not sure I would, I would reboa anyone because uh, that, that just seems like such a small time interval to me. But I accept the fact uh, that it, in most centers, it is not five minutes. It is likely 20 minutes or longer from the yeah. time you make that decision. Uh, and if, if, if the hairs in the back of your neck are standing up, you, know, you can look at the patient and say, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't just mean the blood pressure. Uh, yes, we're looking for hypotensive uh, patients, but not all hypotensive patients look the same. There's there's hypotension and looks okay, and there's hypotension that is ashen and white and um, dying, and yeah. those patients look different. And I would not hesitate to reboa uh, the patient in the latter category. Yeah, I, I guess I'm asking that question out of for personal reasons because I we were talking earlier about you know forward surgical teams and. In that setting, I think that you re- your your decision to cut time is often less than five minutes because the OR is right there, and the decision of when to do it in that setting, I, I think, is even more difficult. Uh, I, I I agree. Um, you know, the the transport time at, when I was working in the the FST environment from uh, resuscitation tent to operating room tent was about twenty five seconds. Yep. Uh, right. It's just pick up the stretcher, move it fifteen feet, and start. Uh, yeah. And. Um, you know, it's funny, we, we sit here in our ivory towers and academic centers, uh, and we, you know, we, we, we try to think about how, um, what, what a great job we're doing. And um, sometimes I think, gee, uh, for, for patients who are bleeding to death, um, showing up at an FST uh, might be, or it likely is the best thing that's ever happened to them. Yeah. And uh, it, it sometimes uh, saddens me that we can't reproduce that in a first world country with infinite resources, right? Decision to knife time of five minutes or four minutes or, or less. Uh, but uh, our, sadly, our, except for a few places in the country that can pull that off, uh, most places, the infrastructure is just not set up to, to uh, honestly, to deliver care that fast. Yeah, that's why I think those uh, those direct to OR type of algorithms. Uh, first, uh, there's a couple of trauma centers that do that. I think I, to me that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I agree. We, we also have a, a direct to OR oh, uh, algorithm, uh, but the, um, the the patient uh, the patient selection portion of that uh, needs to be flawless. And um, as as I'm sure you're aware, sometimes pre hospital um, information is far from flawless. Uh, so it's very often very difficult to uh, make a decision to take someone straight to the OR for fear of the, um, of the, the false negative triage, right? You really, yeah. you really want to mobilize all the 
all the infrastructure necessary to bring that patient straight to the OR only to realize once they get there that they really didn't belong there. Um, so uh, not, not easy answers in my mind. Any other technologies out there besides Reboa, besides the ResQ foam um, that you're working on or that you've heard about, you're excited about? Um, you know, there's, there's a, a bunch of other things in the literature that are just not out and ready for uh, prime time yet. Um, it's, you know, Lauren Blackburn uh, wrote a paper called um, 1811, uh, essentially describing how little uh, we've uh, progressed over uh, 200 years. Um, you know, we're in some, in some ways, we are still uh, barber surgeons. Um, patients with bleeding need a big operation and they need it fast. And um, I, I think little has, has changed uh, in, in that respect. Uh, and probably uh, the, the best lesson I, I think, I hope that I'm passing along to trainees uh, is that the, the, the key to preserving life in trauma is to be exceedingly aggressive about, about operating uh, and figuring out who, who needs an operation in a very aggressive way and then um, making that happen in sometimes an extremely aggressive way. Um, you know, t- time is not on the side of, of, of those patients. Every minute delay um, has a demonstrable uh, impact on mortality. And I see that I, I see my job as um, chipping away at at those minutes. And sometimes those minutes are decision making, and sometimes they're they're just geography, right? Moving patients from one place to another. Um, so that that's my battle when I'm on call is um, chipping away at at those minutes. And I I, I hope the um, the aggressiveness with which I I like to believe I'm I'm doing that uh, translates to the trainees. Well, Dr. King, uh, I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time. This has certainly been a very fascinating discussion. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, we'd like to finish as we finish with all our shows, and that's the the final five. It, it's uh, five quick and easy questions that let our listeners uh, get to know you a little bit more personally. So question number one, do you listen to uh, music in the operating room? And if you do, what's on your iPod? <laughs> Interesting. So um, I don't listen to music for short cases, uh, but for long cases, I do. And, um, I have a, a couple of playlists depending on my, my mood and depending on who the, um, uh, who I'm operating with. So a, as a, as a runner, I'm, I'm quite a, a big fan of, uh, electronic music. Um, and I'll listen to that sometimes in the operating room. Um, but that's not always everyone's cup of tea. Uh, so, um, you know, I have a, a sort of a, um, you know, eighties, uh, nineties, classic rock uh, play, playlist that uh, tends to um, uh, please more ears than, uh, than the uh, electronic playlist. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much the way it goes for me, but only, only for longer cases. That's awesome. So, you know, we have a strong feeling you're going to say your biggest hobby is running. So taking running off the table, <laughs> what is your next biggest hobby, talent, or interest outside of the operating room? Um, you know, I, I, have two daughters and a dog. Um, and much is said and uh, much is tweeted uh, uh, about the so-called, you know, work-life balance. 
And um, many of us, uh, me, me particularly, I'm not sure that that is a, a thing. Um, it's not the fact that uh, we're struggling for balance. It's creating an environment where all the things that you do uh, create happiness for you and, and those around you. So, um, you know, yes, I, I, I do love running. And of course, that is a predictable answer. But, uh, it, you know, my next biggest passion is um, trying to be a, a good father to my daughters and, um, uh, and hanging out with my dog. And um, my, both of my daughters know how to do CPR. They can put tourniquets on. Uh, they know how many clicks to put on the aortic cross clamp. Uh, and they're seven and 11 years old. Uh, so, um, lots of our time is spent talking about the things that excite me, uh, about my life. And notice I said my life, not my job, because, you know, for many of us, medicine is not just a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. Uh, and I I think my daughters see how happy that makes me. And so, uh, they ask me questions about it and want to talk about it. And, you know, when they say, will you, will you, uh, you know, teach us CPR? I, I, I just, you know, I, I'm glowing when, when I, when I hear that kind of stuff from them, because, you know, it's what I, what makes me uh, happy and passionate. And uh, I, I just love sharing that with them. That's excellent. Is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've taken recently? Uh, many of my trips revolve around uh, races, uh, traveling to races, uh, just, um, uh, running so marathons and Ironman triathlon races, and uh, you know my one of my favorite trips uh, that I take almost every year is to uh, Mont Tremblant in Canada to race Ironman Mont Tremblant. Uh, but probably uh, my most favorite recent trip was uh, to uh, New Zealand, uh, where um, I raced out there, and that that was just gorgeous country. Uh, I I would love to go back. Okay, number four. So if you weren't uh, a doctor, if you weren't in medicine at all, what else would you be doing right now? You know, I'd probably uh, be um, an engineer of some sort. I started college as an electrical engineer. um, And much of my research revolves around technologies that require um, a high degree of uh, engineering knowledge. And of course, as an engineer turned physician, I recognize the limits of my ignorance. And so uh, I have to um, ally with some very, very smart engineers. And I often um, uh, marvel at the, the, the limits of my knowledge and the, and the expansive breadth of theirs and, and um, often think, gee, I, I, I wish I knew all that. <laughs> uh, so I'd probably be an engineer if I, if I wasn't a, a doc. Yeah. Uh, so final question, if you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? You can't stop the clock. Meaning I, what? Explain that to people. Yeah, I mean, I remember what it was like to be a junior resident. It's, I, I, I mean, I think it's the, it's the hardest year in all, of, in all of training, right? Everything is new. You graduate from medical school, you think you got it all figured out. You don't have anything figured out. Everything's new. It's complex. It's real. Uh, you know, I can remember uh, just um, stressing out over whether to give some patient 80 cc's an hour of maintenance fluid or 100. Which was the right decision? How do I know? What are the complications? And uh, I think um, intern year is a challenge for 
uh, all surgical interns, well, probably for all interns, but, um, you know, my knowledge base extends only to, or my experience base extends to the, the surgical realm. Uh, and, um, just like it was for most people it was very challenging for me. And, um, uh, late into my internship, someone made me aware of, of that fact by, by saying, you know, you, they can't stop the clock, meaning, uh, just keep your head down, do the right thing, work hard, make good decisions. Um, don't lie, be dedicated, uh, be punctual and overall put patient first and, um, it, it, this too shall pass. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's why I would tell my, myself. Great advice. Uh, all right, Dr. King. Well, uh, it was, been an absolute pre- pleasure to be able to speak with you and uh, thank you very much for your time and thanks for being on behind the knife. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invite and, uh, th- this was a pleasure until next time dominate the day.